Welcome to another episode of Men's Bible Study. Pastor John Mark Caton joins us today as we begin a brand new series, Walking Through the Book of Daniel. Today we're going to be talking about a nation that has wasted its history and its legacy, but a couple of men that stood strong. Now, let's hear from Pastor John Mark. All right, what's up, boys? Good seeing you all this morning. And I uh, want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to start a brand new series today, uh, walking through the book of Daniel. Uh, if you haven't been there in a while, uh, go ahead and feel free uh, to start looking and then put a mark in it because every Tuesday morning, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. And so uh, today we're going to kind of be looking at uh, a nation that wasted its history and its legacy but a couple of men who stood strong. And you know, as I look at what's going on in our country today, you, you wonder, are we wasting our godly legacy? Are we wasting the blessings of God? And uh, what is our response to that? And so uh, placing ourselves in the story, I, I think in some measure, in some way, uh, when you look at the book of Daniel, read the book of Daniel, and you see what's going on in our country, uh, you wonder, are we about to squander away the blessings that we've had? Are we about to squander away uh, a godly heritage? Are we about to squander away uh, a nation that has clearly been blessed by God over the years? Now, that also doesn't mean it's a perfect nation. Uh, we, we are a nation that you can look back on our history and we have, uh, we have done some things we shouldn't have done. We have uh, committed some sins that we shouldn't have committed. But there has, has been a reality as you look back over the history of our country that God's blessed us along the way, that we've had uh, uh, enough men uh, who stood up and were God-honoring and God-pleasing men that God uh, uh, maybe overlooked the sins of the nation from time to time for some godly men. And so when we come to this story, uh, I think there are a lot of analogies uh, to where Israel had gotten to, where God didn't want it to get to, and where we've gotten to that I don't think God has wanted us to get to. And so in that moment and in that season, we need to understand, well, if all of a sudden, our nation continues down the path that it's on to become more and more godless, to be less and less God-fearing, that in that season, what kind of men do we need to be? And Daniel and his friends are our, our example. And so when we look at Daniel chapter 1 today, we're going to talk a little bit about history. I want you to know where to put the setting is. So as we journey through uh, the rest of the couple of chapters of, uh, of Daniel, uh, you'll say, all right, here's where we are in the history of Israel. Here's where we are uh, in, in their timeline. And then also glean some insights from Daniel and his friends on how we should respond uh, if we find ourselves in a corporate environment or in a culture uh, that is godless and getting worse. Because if we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that is godless and getting worse, there has to be a response by men that we have to be willing to say, you know what, we're no longer gonna go down that path. We're gonna stand firm and stand strong and we're gonna be the kind of men that God wants us to be. And Daniel and his friends give us a great pattern. 
And so if you just kind of wonder the history, who are some of the contemporaries uh, of, of Daniel? If you think of the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel was a prophet about the time of Daniel as well. You will see here in a second. I won't, I won't go into them. Uh, when, when the Babylonians uh, came in and overthrew Judah, uh, they really had three levels of deportations of people. The first level, Daniel went. The second level, Ezekiel went. And then they had a third deportation later. So if you think Daniel, you think Ezekiel, you think Habakkuk, uh, you think Jeremiah uh, and Zephaniah. Those are all kind of contemporaries of each other if you know, think about the Old Testament prophets. And so the question for us is, if our country, if our culture, if our space continues to go the wrong way, how do we as men respond? And we're going to see a great example of how we should respond. And so let me just, what I want to do today is what I always do, but uh, more importantly, I just want to walk us through and I'll read a couple of verses and then I'll set the stage, give you some commentary on where we are, and then we'll read a couple other verses and I'll glean some insights and hopefully you're taking some notes uh, or you'll uh, sign up for the podcast that you can get. Then I'll read a couple of more verses. We're just going to work our way through Daniel chapter one, and I'm going to give you some historical background as well as some practical principles if you find yourself in a space and a place as to how you should live and also stand firm in your faith. And so let's start by looking at a wasted legacy. We're going to talk about it. Just pick it up and start reading in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of gold. These were carried off to the temple of, God, temple of his God in Babylonia, or in Babylon, and put in the treasure house of his God. So here's what had happened. If you go back years ago, obviously God calls the children of Israel. Uh, Gauls Abram says, hey, I want to take you to a place of promised land. They go through slavery in Egypt. They eventually are led into the promised land by Joshua. Uh, God says, hold firm to me and I'll protect you. Stay faithful to me and I'll protect you. And what happens? The children of Israel begin to squander it. They begin to worship other gods. They begin to elect the wrong kings. The wrong kings come to power. From time to time, uh, they will have a revival in their land and God will bless them. Then you'll know they divide into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, if you go through the book of First and Second Kings, uh, anytime you see a bad king, there is a high likelihood that that king was a king of the north. From time to time, you'll see a string of a couple of good kings, and he oftentimes, and it was called Israel, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, the southern kings, you would have more godly kings, but eventually they followed the same path. And when they continued to follow the same godless path, here's what happens. God removed his hand of protection. First on the northern kingdoms, says, you know what? If you're going to worship other gods, if you're going to intermarry, if you're going to intermingle, if you're going to live a godless life, God says, you know what? I'm going to lift my hand of protection. Sure enough, God does that. Now, that should have been a, a warning shot fired over the bow to southern Judah. And it was for a while. But then they begin to do the same things over and over again. And in this moment, this season, God just kind of removes his hand of protection and says, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, have at him. I'm, I'm going to stop protecting you. 
And this is the result of your godless ways. And so as you just think through, let me share a little bit of history. If you go back, uh, how many of you remember a guy named Jonah? Remember a guy named Jonah? Go to 760 BC. So remember when we begin to walk in a timeline in the BC moment, we're going to walk down towards zero. But about 760, there was a guy named Jonah that was called to go be a prophet. And uh, that prophet was called to go to Nineveh. And he didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were godless people uh, a long time before this. And so God finally put him, put him through a big fish and Jonah goes, prophesies in a place called Nineveh, which was also in a country called Assyria. There is revival about 760 BC in a country called Assyria, but that revival doesn't last and they go back to their godless ways. Fast forward uh, about 40 years, 722 BC, the Assyrian capital uh, uh, is overthrown. Assyria was right next to Babylon. And the Assyrian capital in 722 was overthrown by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians owned everything. They basically dominated the Assyrians. You had the Babylonians owned everything. Then the Babylonians go down and they light up Egypt. So it's the most powerful country in the world. And so after they've dominated Assyria, after they've defeated Egypt, then they're looking at Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar says, why can't I go and attack Judah? So he does. He goes down and attacks Judah. Judah kind of stands against him. And ultimately, the king, Jehoiakim, cuts a deal with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, listen, if you won't destroy our temple and our place and our space, he goes, I will serve you, but just let us be our own nation. So for three years, they were what was called a vassal state. All right, that they had to do what Nebuchadnezzar said, but the king got to stay in power. But you better do what Nebuchadnezzar said. That lasted for about three years, and finally the king in Judah said, you know, I'm kind of done with this stuff. And so he rebels. So when he rebels, Nebuchadnezzar says, we're not having that. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes down, destroys Judah, the temple, the walls, everything else, takes the king, Jehoiakim, and said, why don't you just uh, get out? Actually installs, I think it was his brother-in-law, as the king. And he goes, you can be the puppet king, all right? And what we're going to do is we're going to start bringing your best and your brightest. So listen, it starts with Israel squandering its history, its legacy, its godly-focused nature. And it was also not just the king, it was the men. They begin to worship other gods. They begin to live in ways that uh, they didn't, didn't need to live. And so, guys, it's a challenge for us as men of God. Don't just look at the president and wonder if he's godless. Look in the mirror and ask if that guy's become godless. If that guy is living more according to the, wor the world than he is living by the word. See, because it's easy for us to point at a political leader and say they shouldn't be doing this. And there's a lot to say they shouldn't be doing this about. But guys, more important, just like we're going to talk about on Friday night, it's more important for godly men to man up and not look up at what, what's happening in Washington, D.C., but look in the mirror and say, what's happening in that dude's life? Am I willing to be the kind of man 
that lives more by God's word than I do by the ways of the world. And so Israel squandered its history and God removed its, his, his hand of protection and his hand of blessing. Because even if you look through the history of Israel, there were more powerful nations even than the Babylonians that God protected them from. He would just have a, give them a miraculous victory. But now you're at a place where God has removed his hands and they're left to fight on their own and they can't win the battle on their own. They could win the battle with God, but without God, they couldn't win the battle. And so what happens, and you need to understand, Daniel was a young man at this time. That Daniel saw this take place. Daniel saw the Babylonians show up. He was part of the first deportation back to Babylon. And what they would do, and you've heard this before, is they would come into a culture and a place... They, they didn't want the old men, by the way. Hey, none of, none of y'all would get taken away. How many of you understand? Go ahead and fess up. Actually, there's a couple of them. A, a couple, they would take the young men. Why would they take the young men? Because they could serve the king the longest. They were strongest. They were young. And they were more easily impressionable. Uh, I want you to know as your pastor, I, I've realized y'all are not very impressionable. Okay, I can preach the lights out. And it won't move one of you guys an inch, right? Why? Because the older we get, man, we hear the right things. We just aren't willing to do the right things. But here's what he says. He says, hey, bring me back a bunch of kids, uh, young teenagers. And in that first deportation, Daniel goes back. Now imagine Daniel who's grown up in Judah, going to the temple, seeing the places of worship, seeing some of the instruments that are in the temple, watching some of the things that had happened in his homeland where they are supposedly serving the one true God. And all of a sudden, a king, an outside king, comes in, tears down your walls, destroys your temple, gathers you up, takes you back to a new place, a new house, a new homeland, and guess what you start seeing coming off the moving trucks? The gold from the temple. The stuff from the places you used to worship. The goods that you had seen in the streets of Jerusalem, God's city. Imagine what must have been going through Daniel's mind. I'm in a new place, in a new house, and the moving trucks that are being emptied in Babylon, it's our stuff. It's our stuff. And it shouldn't be here. It should be there. I shouldn't be here. I should be there. And so guys, here's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we are the kind of men that don't squander the godly legacy that God has given us. That we are willing to man up for God and do the right thing. But we also need to understand, if our country continues to go off the deep end in a godless space, in a godless place, we need to know that there are some core convictions we must hold 
to stand firm even in the face of difficulties. And that's what we're going to glean from this young man, Daniel. We're not talking about a seasoned saint here. Daniel, is not, he becomes a seasoned saint. When you look at the timeline of the book of Daniel, as originally written in Aramaic, which was kind of the trade language of the day, Daniel becomes a godly man because he holds some core convictions. And if you look at the book of Daniel, it lasts about 69 years. From the moment, if you just want to write that down, from the moment that Daniel is taken from Israel, Judah, to Babylon, Daniel has influence for 69 years. From the beginning to the end of the book. So here, here's the beauty of what we're going to see in these core convictions. It is Daniel is not just a man of God in Daniel chapter 1. For 69 years, he's a man of God. Men, so my invitation for us as we start studying this book today, don't be just a man of God for the moment. Make a decision today that whatever life God gives you, you will be ma a man of godly conviction till your very last breath. Till your very last breath. Because if all we read and all we study today is Daniel chapter 1, let me tell you what, it's a win. Everybody say it's a win. But you know what the real win is? It's not just Daniel 1. It's Daniel chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So guys, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 today, and we're going to see some principles that started it all, that carry it on. But remind yourself that it's not just about being a Daniel 1 Daniel. It's about me after I become a Daniel 1 Daniel. I want to be a Daniel 2 and a Daniel 3 and Daniel 4. And what we'll see in his thing is he goes through four different kings. And by the way, every one of the kings he serves are all atheist. But he serves them well. And he's actually having influence over a godless and atheist king in a faraway land, helping coordinate, remember there are three deportations out of Judah, coordinate and write the edicts that are allowing Israelites go, to go back to Judah and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. That's the man of influence that has a true and lasting legacy. So here's the story. I, I just read it to you. Notice what took place. It says that uh, Babylon came in. They, over, they destroyed um, Judah. They tore down the temple, tore down the walls. If you wonder, if you move forward to Ezra and Nehemiah, why does the temple need to re be rebuilt? Why do the walls need to be rebuilt? It's because of right here. All right? It's because of right here. 
And so Babylon's come in, they've taken away everything, they've destroyed uh, the king, man, and, and, and the best and the brightest are away. So thought number one is they wasted their history. Number two, uh, notice what the Babylonians did. They collected the best and the brightest. So they deported some of the young, best young men from Judah, and they took them from Judah all the way to Babylon. Now notice the collection. How did they collect these guys? How did Daniel get chosen? Here it is. Pick it up. We're just going to read it. Verse 3 says, Then, then the king ordered uh, Ashpenaz, uh, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from, notice who Daniel was part of, the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect that are handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. So here's this ba Babylonian course, all right? This Babylonian course, they've deported a bunch of people. Then he says, go choose of the ones we deported. Let's choose the best and the brightest. And we want to have a, have a, have a, have a course for the best and the brightest to train them in our ways, in the Babylonian ways. And you say, what were the qualifications? You might want to just write these down. Uh, he wanted them to come from some sort of noble or royal bloodline. Where do you see that? Verse 3. He said, he said, he ordered him, uh, bring to me some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So Daniel had some royal blood in him. Daniel had some noble blood in him. Notice the second qualification. Make sure they're physically attractive. In other words, what was the king saying? Uh, I don't want any ugly dudes serving in my king's court, right? That's essentially what he was saying, all right? Uh, make sure they're physically attractive. Here's, here's a third one. Uh, make sure they're mentally sharp. What does he say? He says, make sure they have the ability to learn, because I'm going to teach them uh, Babylonian literature, Babylonian art. I'm going to teach them our math. I'm going to teach them all of our skills. I'm going to do all of this. All right. So what did they have to do? They had to be a noble bloodline. They had to be physically attractive. Uh, he had mentally sharp. And then notice they had to be socially dignified. Why? Because they were ultimately going to serve in the king's court. And so the king says, hey, bring me the handsome ones. Bring me the smart ones. Bring me the ones that uh, are from nobility, that know how to carry themselves. And he goes, bring me some that are socially dignified. Notice verse 4, he says, that are qualified. If you might want to underline that word qualified in verse 4, really an accurate translation would be dignified. Bring, bring me the guys that know how to carry themselves. Because if they're going to be walking in and out of the king's presence, king's court, give me the best and the brightest. So that was how they collected them. That a deportation from Judah to Babylon. Of the ones they deported, uh, the king looked at his official and said, hey, of those ones we brought out, divide all the other ones out. Make them slaves in different places. Go work in different places. But take the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest. And he goes, prepare them to serve in the king's court. Now, you say, all right, what, what did they do then? Then you got to brainwash them, right? You got to de-Judaize them, if you want to put it that way. And you got to put them through a course. And so you say, where do you pick this up? Pick it up in verse 4. So here's the Babylonian training course. It's, it's kind of their own education system. This is a brainwashing system. What we need to do, verse 4, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them daily, a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. Three years. 
All right? You don't just roll into the king's court, all right, and, uh, and say, hey, I'm ready to serve. Train them for three years, and after three years, they were to enter the king's service. Look at verse 6. Among those were chosen. Some of, them, some of, the, some of those from Judah were Daniel, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, which are Daniel, who he named Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. So, so notice, first of all, before you even look into the meanings of the names and, and what he did changing their names, this, are, this is their brainwashing course. Uh, notice the things that he did. He, he says, we want to educate them. But we don't want to educate them in the things of God. We want to educate them in the things of the world. That's why, guys, education matters. And if you wonder what has taken place in our education system, why do people want to educate our kids in ways that, that there's a thousand different genders or even more day by day? Why? That's if they can capture the mind, they can capture the kid. So he says, let's educate them in our literature, in our way of life, in what we want to do. And so we want to re-educate them. The second thing he says, change their diet. Apparently they were not a fan of a kosher diet. So he said, we want to change their diet, let them eat some of the best stuff, what they'll be eating in the king's presence. And not only that, they said that we want to change your identity. Man, if you wonder right now in our world, if you take that, where they were in that station, in that place, and look in our world, man, our kids are having an identity crisis. They wonder who they are. Are they made in the image of God? Are they some soup and mess of what they see on social media and what they hear taught uh, in the classrooms and talked to about? Man, they wanted to give these guys a new identity. If you didn't know, let me just give you the definitions. I don't know if you heard that. Uh, Daniel, anybody know what Daniel means in the Hebrew? God is my judge. That was his name. You want to know what the new name was, Belteshazzar? Here's what it means. Bel protect the king whom Bel, fa Bel favors. So Daniel's name was changed from God is my judge to Bel favors the king. That's an interesting name. So Daniel's now given a name that says your God favors you over my God being the judge of all of us. Uh, what about Hananiah? Hananiah, if you want, want, want to write this down, you know what Hananiah means in the Hebrew? It means one loved of God. Hananiah means one loved of God. His parents took him and they named him Hananiah. Why? Because they understood that he was one that was loved by God. He was given the name Shadrach. It, it was a token praise of one of the Babylonian gods, the sun gods. So he went from one who is loved by God to Bel praise the sun god. Uh, let me give you another one. What Michelle? It's a question. Who is like God? The God of Israel. That's what Michelle means. You see El in the end of his name. El, God, Elohim. He says, who is like God? The answer was clearly no one. And that was a reminder every time you said that. He was given a new name uh, called Meshach. It says, uh, 
One who is like Venus. They worship Venus. Go to the next one. Azariah means the Lord, Elohim. The Lord is my helper. That, that was the identity these guys had all along. Who is like God? God is my judge. Man, serve Lord. And, and what else? God loves me and the Lord is my helper. And he was called Abednego. That means the servant of Nego. The servant of Nego? What is Nego? Nego is the god of vegetation. Remember, they were agrarians in the day. So, so they were taken from their location, from their families, to a new place, given what? A new diet, a new education system, a new course, and they were given new names. Names that no longer meant and gave praise to Elohim, but instead gave praise either to the king or the gods of the Babylonians. Those were their new names. So when you hear those words, know that those weren't just throwaway words. They were given legit names for legitimate reasons back in Israel when they were born. But let me tell you what, the godless culture in Babylon did the exact same thing. They chose specific names and special names because they wanted to retrain these kids to follow their gods and their king instead of the one true God and look back to Jerusalem. Man, they absolutely had a way they wanted to collect these young men, where they wanted them to serve, and then ultimately who they wanted them to identify as. And it was a choice that they made. Now let's just continue to read and notice the principle. So here we see how is Daniel and his friends, how are they going to respond in a new land with new leadership, with a new education system, with a new diet, with a, a new God they were supposed to serve? How are they going to respond? Just pick it up in verse 8. Uh, I love these first three words. But Daniel resolved. Everybody say resolved. resolved. There it is. So you've seen... Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Verse 7, bad news. New place, new leader, new everything. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved. Men, the invitation as we start this book today is that you would insert your name. Right there. And you would say, but I resolve in my heart to honor God regardless of where I am, regardless of who I'm around, regardless of who I'm with, regardless of who the president is, regardless of where I work, regardless of what I do. I resolve to honor God in every area of my life, in my relationships, in my words, in my thoughts, in my energy, in my activity, with my worship, with my study of God's word, with my serving in God's house. Let me ask you a question. When Daniel resolved here in verse eight, how many of you think his greater desire would have been to be serving in God's house back in Jerusalem. Absolutely. But even when he wasn't, 
But Daniel resolved. Guys, let's walk out of here together as a collection of men. Resolving in our heart that we will serve God regardless of what happens. We will do whatever it takes for the gospel and God's church, even if it hurts, even when it hurts, even when I feel out of space and out of place, I'm willing to resolve to honor God. Then notice what it says. Just continue to read verse 8. But Daniel resolved, that really means purposed in his heart, set upon his heart, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. That means daily. Daniel made a decision to resolve one day, and guess what? He resolved it the next day, and he resolved it the next day, and he resolved it the next day. You know, you can resolve all you want to in here. But guess what? Wednesday's coming. How many of you know that? It just, it's going to show up. And guess what you're going to have to do Wednesday morning? Resolve in your heart not to devour yourself with the things of the world. And guess what? Thursday's going to show up. And guess what you're going to have to do on Thursday? You're going to have to resolve not to devour yourself with the things of this world. Friday's going to show up. Saturday's going to show up. But I got good news. Sunday shows up. Amen? Right? And you resolve in your heart, man, I am going to be all about Every Sunday, being God's house in God's place, studying God's word with God's people, looking for someone else, I can impact because I've resolved the week before to serve God and Him alone. Man, that's the way we want to be. Now, I love this. We, we talk about Daniel a lot. But notice, Daniel wasn't alone. Man, guys, don't be a lone ranger Christian. We're seeing that Daniel had some other guys, some other men. They were willing to resolve in their hearts as well. Guys, look around in here. You've got some other men that are willing to resolve. Don't walk without them and don't walk it alone. And if you have kids or if you have grandkids, do everything you can to make sure they don't walk alone and try to resolve in their heart because that's part of the message. I think Daniel's telling us, yes, I resolved in my heart, and we can high-five Daniel all over. But Daniel's saying, don't forget about the other guys. So guys, the same challenge for you and me in here today is don't forget about the other guys. We all need some other guys. Hey, guys, come in close. Your pastor, he needs some other guys. Got some amazing guys on staff, a couple of them here, Justin and Justin, the taller and shorter one. Greg, we've got a senior staff. We've got a place that loves to worship. You saw Super Dave earlier. Can I just tell you, your pastor needs those men. If you wonder, your pastor needs those men. But, but I've got some other men in the church. How many deacons do we have in the room in here? If you don't think your pastor needs those men, think again. Think again. One of the highlights of my Sunday morning, regardless of how I feel or whatever it is, is 845, I'm walking out of that door, and we'll have a circle of about 20 deacons standing right there. And before you ever see me up on that stage, 
you can come here. Just look. If you want to come pray with us, come on. 845, I'll walk out. I'll stand in a circle with 20 deacons that will pray over me and they'll pray over every person that's walking in this church and they'll pray over you. Can I just tell you, your pastor needs some other men. Frazier, he needs some other men. Hillhouse, he needs a lot of men. <laughs> and a lot of help. Greg, Long, are they just killing it in worship? By the way, this, this weekend is our one-year anniversary. Be here. We'll have cake. <laughs> they need some other men. They don't need other men just to tell them it was a little too loud or a little too cold in the worship center. They need some other men walk by and say, you're awesome. I'm praying for you. Hang in there. Keep doing it. Right? I think it's something we can miss is that in the midst of talking about this stud, Daniel, he makes sure we knew it wasn't just him. He had some other men. So guys, think about some other. But then notice here it is. All right, so he's resolved in his heart. But let's just continue to read verse 8. So he approaches the official of the king with humility. All right? And so, so, so don't walk out of this idea and, and don't just say, all right, I purposed in my heart. But notice his approach. It's humility. It says, he asked the chief of the official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So here he, defi he, he made a decision in his heart. I am not going to defile myself. I'm resolving in my heart. I'm not going to defile myself. But then it says what? It says, so he sought permission not to defile himself. He came in with humility. He understood what was on the line for the king's official. Let me ask you a question. If all of a sudden a bunch of these best and the brightest, the royal breed they've chosen to serve in the king's court, if a group of them all of a sudden begin to look bad, they don't learn well, they don't become what they're doing, who's going to pay the price? The official. So he walks in with humility and he asks for permission. I think it's kind of interesting. It doesn't say Daniel caustically approached the official. Daniel crudely approached the official. It ought to be a challenge to us that we can be men of integrity, men of steel, men of great resolve, but we can also be men of incredible humility and kindness and graciousness. Years ago, I had a good friend that uh, his, his, best, his best comment or praise for you, he's a, he's a pastor friend, was if he called you a velvet hammer. He called you a velvet hammer. First time I heard him talking about a velvet hammer, I was like, what a velvet hammer? I don't think they make those. Is that, is that man, you've got a soft exterior that people love to be around. But when push comes to shove, you will drive nails for Jesus. And that's where we want to be, right? We don't want to be caustic and angry and, you know, just you, you want to be one of these that walks like Daniel. He came in and he approached him with humble. Now just continue to read. But the official told Daniel, wait, wait, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned you, uh, who has assigned your food and your drink, 
what, what should he do to me if you look worse than the other ones? The king would have my head. How many of you would say, uh, that's a high price to pay? I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've got one head. If you take it, I'm probably done. So he says, he understands the king. Listen, if I let you get away with this, he's going to have my head. And Daniel didn't look at him and say, man up. Daniel said, I understand. So Daniel comes with a wise plan. You say, what's Daniel's wise proposal? Look at it, verse 11. Then Daniel said to the guard, jump to verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables and waters to drink. Uh, we're going to go vegan a little bit. He says, then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. He says, listen, let's go into a see it moment. Give us 10 days to live the way we wanted to live eat what we want to eat, and then after 10 days, you make a judge. Are we making the right things? And he goes, you'll see the difference. Then look at verse 14. So he agreed to this test and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, what happened? They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who, who ate the royal food and drank the royal wine. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and, their, uh, and they were able to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. Now, what is the God-honoring outcome? I know you got, we got to close it up here. Jump down. Here are a couple of crowning principles. Number one, his inner conviction to serve God, the hammer part of the velvet, the inner conviction allowed him to have external persuasion. But his inner conviction, that steel hammer, was covered with a velvet glove. And so we want to live that way. Man, we have an internal conviction that his heart is still sold out to God, but we have a velvet glove over the way we talk, the way we act, and the way we interact with people. And so then the second thing is I think about God-honoring decisions will ultimately be given godly rewards. Not to defile himself. You say, where do you see this? Jump down to verse 7. It says, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could, be, uh, could understand visions and dreams and all of this. At the end, the time was set for the king to bring them into the chief's official, presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 19. It says, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to them, so they entered the king's service. Now, what does this also mean? Not only did they eat differently, resolve to honor God and to love God, but it means when he taught them literature, they learned literature. When he taught them science, they learned science. When they taught them math, he learned math. But they also learned to be dignified in the king's presence. Does that make sense? They, they did it all. They didn't just say, we want to do our own thing. They said, we want to be the best at everything and serve God. And that ought to be the challenge in our lives with our kids and in every space and in every way. So here is the ultimately the outcome. Go back to verse 17. Uh, excuse me, jump down to verse 21. It says, and Daniel remained there. Look at those words. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That, you might think that's a throwaway verse, but it's not. Because Daniel was godly, he remained. He remained until this next king. And guess what? And Daniel remained till the next king. And Daniel remained till the next king.
And when God began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, Daniel was there all the way. Why? Because you had a godly man serving a godless leader in a godless country, having godly influence to allow Israelites begin to return home and rebuild their temple and rebuild their wall. Let's be that man. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for these men that are in the room and these that are online, these that will hear this later. Let us be men like Daniel, that we're willing to man up, stay strong, that we would be velvet hammers in our relationships today, in our conversations today, at the office today, in every space and every place we go. And God, let us be men that resolve in our heart not to defile ourselves with the things of the world. And God, when we do that, we serve a God that will make sure that we remain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening to today's Bible study. For more information regarding Cottonwood Creek, go to cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you tune in next time for more episodes of Men's Bible Study.